I think we found our next worship leader. <laughs> All right. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Psalms 54. We are, uh, our, uh, our theme for the summer is Summer Through the Psalms. And uh, just to recap, so you know, uh, if, you're, if you missed out when we talked about it, Psalms is a, uh, a book in the Bible, and it is a collection of uh, uh, psalms, prayers, and poetry uh, collected over the time span of a thousand years, and it was assembled during the exile. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and uh, well, actually, uh, all the way uh, more than a couple of weeks ago, but... Uh, we talked about that, and, and uh, we talked about why we want to go through Psalms, and we said that the Psalms is a great way to get close to Jesus, because when you read the New Testament, a lot of the Old Testament is re-quoted in the New Testament, or paraphrased or referenced, but the book that is most often quoted is the book of Psalms. I don't know if you know this, I, just, I was just realizing this the other day, but Jesus' entire life from his birth all the way to his death on the cross, happens between the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this, but when Mary is informed that she's pregnant, there's a passage in Scripture, I believe it's in Luke, where it's called Mary's Song, and she's praising God for the fact that she is giving birth to the Savior of the entire universe. And she actually, I don't know if you know this or not, but when, when she's praising God in that, she's actually quoting Psalm 78. So before Jesus' life even starts, his, his earthly life starts, he, he is, it happened, Mary is praising or saturating Jesus in Psalms. And at the end of his life, the very last words of Jesus actually are quoted from Psalms 31, right? So Jesus' life, kind of, it's really cool to think about, is, is that Jesus' life, the Psalms permeate Jesus' life before he is born, during his life, and at his death. And I think it's really cool because it actually tells us a lot about Jesus and who he is, and it's a great kind of way to get connected. Today we're going to talk about Psalms 54, uh, if you haven't already guessed by the PowerPoint already, and uh, before we do that, though, I have to uh, tell you a story. My remote's not working, so you want to hit the next slide there for me. So I got to tell you a story. This story happens in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 14 to 16, and uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can do that. Um, hit the next slide for me. Yeah, yeah hitting up the story. So uh, I need to set, set the story up a little bit for you because... We're kind of diving in halfway through a story uh, to understand this. So I know that most of us know who David is, but just in case you are new here and you're kind of exploring Christianity for the first time, uh, and you're not sure who David is, David is one of the most famous people in the Bible. Uh, he is known as Israel's best king. All other kings' uh, success after David were compared to him. So if you read First and Second Kings, you'll notice that it usually starts out by when they introduce a new king to Israel, Judah, they say that, and, this, and so-and-so was king over Israel and Judah for X many years, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And usually what you'll see repeated often is they did not walk in the way as, of, as David did. David was the ultimate standard of what a king in Israel should be. And we see uh, 
the Bible talks a lot about his rise to power, his time during his, his, king, uh, his reign as king, and his ultimate demise. Our story takes place uh, in David's early years, as David is uh, not quite king yet, but he has uh, been enlisted in King Saul's service. And he, Saul has appointed him to uh, take over the mil- different military tasks that Israel was responsible for. And the thing about David is King Saul knew that as soon as king, the king asked David, hey, I need you to get this done, it would get done. That's how good that David was. But David was actually better than that. David not only did his job, did his job, but he did it really well. So much so that he began, uh, he got a ton of popularity. He became extremely popular in Israel. So much popular that he actually, uh, Saul became actually jealous of David. Murderously jealous of David. In fact, you all know the story. Uh, And so what winds up happening is that David is put into a situation that is is kind of an impossible situation because what winds up happening is that David, David's life is threatened. And so what he does is he actually runs away. 1 Samuel 23, verse 14, David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness and the hill country of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So what winds up happening is David is in a situation, and he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to run away, and I'm going to hide in the hill countries of Ziph. And that's really important that we know where he located for later in the story. But I just want to park here, and I want you to understand just how difficult and how out of character it is for David to run away. It's really, really crucial that you understand this because um, David, are you ready for this? David is a man. Everyone is like, oh, I didn't know that. David is a man. And David, I believe that God has wired all men to do three things, is uh, to produce, to provide, and to protect. And David is a guy that loves to protect, okay? You know his story. If you know his story, you know that this guy is not afraid to throw down. I mean, this guy is a shepherd. He, was, uh, he, he said, like, I, I wrestled bears and I fought bears. And I just thought about that for a minute. And then, like, this is the epitome of a man's masculine man, okay? This guy does not have a shotgun or he's not hunting. He's got a slingshot and he sees a bear and he goes, Rah! and he's trying to protect the sheep, right? This guy is not afraid. This guy is a protector, okay? Protects the sheep. He, on, on top of that, we also know that David, what is David most famous for? Well, there's two things. What's the one, what's the one that he's most famous for? Taking down Goliath, okay? So we know right away that David is not someone who runs away from a fight. So why on earth does he run away from this fight? Well, friends, I, I think you have to understand that this is, a, this is a, David is put into an impossible situation. Because here's, here are his options, okay? 
if he stays in the service of Saul and does nothing and does not defend himself, he dies. Okay? Everyone clear on that? Smile and nod? Yeah. However, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but if David defends himself, it's equally as dangerous. Because what winds up happening is Saul is so insanely jealous that he starts believing the lies that other people are telling him that David is kind of going to do like a coup and a revolution and take over and it's going to be bad, so all this kind of thing. So he really believes that David is out to get him. So on one hand, if he does nothing, he dies. On the other hand, any attempt to defend himself legitimately, to confront Saul or even to kill him, kind of gives credit to any lies that Saul is, uh, any, any lies that Saul is. He, is, he will put himself in a situation where any legitimate attempt to protect himself actually makes himself look worse. And I bring that up because I want you to know that because David is a protector, because it's in his nature to confront and stand up and face, it is really, 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 really hard to be put in a situation where the actions of protecting yourself and standing up for yourself and doing what by nature guys are created to do uh, is it's hard to just trust God for that, okay? To trust God to be the protector. Every guy struggles with that because I believe that every guy is created to produce, to provide, and protect. And so you are, as a man of God, I believe that God has called you to protect, to protect your family, to, do, to protect people, all that kind of thing. But also, because we are men of God, there's also an extra layer where we have to trust that the Lord is the ultimate protector, and in this situation, David can't do anything, but he can't protect himself either, so he runs away okay, into the wilderness. And he's forced into a situation, really, really important that you understand this, where the only person that can protect him is God. Any attempt for him to protect himself will go badly. And if you know the story, you know that there were opportunities where David had a chance to kill Saul, and he didn't, and there's reasons for that. He was trusting in God. So David takes off into the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, Saul pursues him, and then one day uh, he is being relentlessly pursued. But uh, David has a friend named Jonathan. Jonathan is his close friend, and Jonathan knows where he's hiding and so he decides that he's going to go encourage David. So he goes in and he says to him, uh, Do not fear for the hand of Saul, my, my father, shall not, not find you. You shall be king over all Israel and I will be next to you. Uh, and Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David remained in Horish and Jonathan went up to him. Now here's what happens. Yeah, this is really, this is a, this is a, an important plot point. While, while Jonathan is encouraging David, there's a people there called the Ziphites. And the Ziphites wind up selling out David to Saul. They go to him and they say, is not David hiding among the strongholds of Horish on the hill country, which is south of Jerusalem? Okay. 
Now, who are the Ziphites? Well, I could go into a whole explanation of it, but just for our purpose this morning, I think what you need to know is that they're completely neutral right up until this point in this turkey shoot with, with, uh, <clears throat> with Saul and David. David hasn't done anything to hurt them. And they haven't done anything to hurt David. They are completely and utterly kind of the bystanders watching this, watching this fight unfold right up until this point. Okay? When that happens, Saul responds by saying, hey, I'm really blessed that you are looking out for me. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to do some reconnaissance for me. Go back, tell me his exact location. And when you tell me his exact location, I personally will come out and I'll put an end to this guy and Israel will be safe. So that's exactly what happens. So they go out and they scout and they confirm where David is. And what winds up happening is David realizes that his location has been compromised and he starts running away. And particularly, they start running around a mountain, right? And you know the story. The story is like Saul is on one side of the mountain, David is on one, the other side, and they're kind of chasing each other around the mountain. Now, the reason that's important is because if you look at Psalms 54, okay, you'll notice that in between the big number 54 and verse run is a superscript, tells you, it says this, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, this was written when the Ziphites went around and said, is not David hiding among us? So what is happening is David is, war, is aware that he's been sold out by strangers and he's running around the mountain. And I can imagine it like this, okay? He's running around the mountain. And they are, during the day, they are trying to put as much distance between them and Saul as possible. They stop for the night. They have a campfire. They rest. And as he's resting, he writes Psalms 54 as a prayer, right? So let me read it to you. And I'm going to go forth from this. And so here's what I'm going to say when you read this. You've got to read it as if you're in an airplane and it's about to crash, okay? So don't read it like you read in church because when you read it in church, it's very monotone, very kind of like, like emotionless. This is a prayer written by someone who is about to be murdered, okay? So read it like that, okay? It says this. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. So, it's not, God, save me by your name and vindicate your might. It's, God, save me, okay? Because he's about to die. Oh, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men to seek my life. They do not seek and set themselves before God. Who are the strangers that he's referring to? He's referring to the Zephonites, right? People that he doesn't know. He doesn't, he doesn't have a quarrel with them. He doesn't know that he has hurt them or they've hurt them. They are complete and utter strangers to him. And they have decided to sell him out. They have decided to pick a fight with David. For, and David doesn't know why, okay? Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies, in your faithfulness, you will put an end to them. 
With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for he is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So essentially what you're reading in Psalms 54 is, Psalms 54 is essentially a prayer that David is praying for God to help and intervene because these strangers have sold him out. Okay? This is really, really important for you and I to understand because um, when I read a story like this, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't know if you've thought about this for a minute, but I don't understand it when people who are total strangers, who are, who are neutral, who make you out to be the enemy, why do people hurt people they have no relational connection with? Why do strangers treat people this badly? Why do people who have no connection with you, who you've done nothing wrong or treat badly, all of a sudden come at you? And I've, I've always struggled with this. I'm wondering this morning if you can recall a time in your life when people you, that you didn't know, who, you didn't, who didn't have, as far as you could tell, any real reason to treat you poorly, treated you poorly. Have you ever been treated poorly by a stranger? Of course we have. Some of us have, been, have had bullies and we've been picked on and we can't figure out why. And I mention this because someone, as, I might be speaking today as, to someone as quote-unquote as innocent as David. Perhaps too you are being spied on, sold out who, by people who have no motives to betray you. It's a frightening experience to live David's life and to be falsely accused but then on top of that, have strangers tell, sell you out because they believe the false accusations. It makes you wonder if the whole world has turned against you. It doesn't seem like it would happen that often, but it actually happens more often than you can, ima- you can imagine when you think about it. You're in elementary school and you move on to junior high. You're nervous to sit down. You don't know anyone. You're a total and utter stranger. Someone notices you and asks you to sit at their table with their friends. One of the unpopular kids walks by and everyone at that table starts making fun of what they're wearing. You know it isn't right to tear down someone, but you want to make a good impression with your new friends. So here you are in a situation where you start tearing down someone that you don't otherwise know simply because you want to fit in. Happens in our adult lives too, I would imagine. I don't know if you've heard this story. Uh, This is a story that happened uh, in 2016. How many of you are familiar with an event called the Banjo Bowl? Right? A few of you. The Banjo Bowl is the local and yearly rivalry between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and whoever the Regina so-and-sos are. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's uh, quite an event in Winnipeg. One day in 2016, while this event was going on, a mother took her nine-year-old son to the game. And as you know, when you go to a game like this, you wear the colors of your team in solidarity of your team. This boy, however, he went to the, he went to the game. Uh, they didn't 
enjoy very much, so they left halfway through, and as they were walking out, he, the people who were half drunk noticed that he was wearing the Saskatchewan Rough Rider colors. So they decided that as the kid was leaving, they took their beer and poured it all over him. Started swearing at him right up in his face and calling all kinds of names because he was wearing a green jacket. When I hear a story like that, I don't know why, what would possess an adult, even an intoxicated adult, to completely misbehave and trade a stranger. And yet it does happen all the time. Psalms 54 this morning is a, is a situation like that where the Ziphites are the strangers and David is praying to God for help. Psalms 54, in my mind, uh, is a way that if you've ever been persecuted by people, particularly people that you don't know, it is an encouragement. If you've ever found yourself in a situation where total strangers antagonize you for no re- reason, Psalms 54 helps because it is written by David during a time in his life when that happened. <laughs> Psalms 54 is the Bible's way of letting you know that God cares so much when you are hurting, when people are out to get you, that you can go to help for God, that no matter what happens, that God is your ultimate perfect, uh, protector and defender. When you don't know where to go or don't know who to trust, you can trust in God. You can cry out to help for God. When the shadows fall on you, you don't need to fear. You can remember that you are safe in the shadow of the cross. And Psalms 54 is, is a prayer that David prays to asking God for help. It's an extremely practical uh, psalm. I believe that it teaches us as men to live in a way where we live because we are protectors by nature. It actually shows us how to trust that God and live a life that God is an ultimate protector. If you've been picked on or your kids are being picked on, and you're not sure exactly how to pray for that or deal with that. Psalms 54 is an answer for you. But ultimately, I believe that Psalms 54's application to us actually helps us understand how to respond when strangers attack us because of our relationship with Jesus. I don't think I need to make the argument that times are different, times are changing, and it's quite possible that you will at some point be persecuted for your faith by complete strangers. People that don't know you, people that you would, uh, that if, the, if you weren't a Christian and you were just a normal person, you'd probably get along with. People that you would like, people that think the same way as you, that has the polit- same political affiliations as you, that... Um, have the same upbringing that you, that raise their kids in the same kind of homeschooling, private school, or public school as you. Total other strangers will actually come at you and antagonize you on some level for sharing the good, for being a Christian at some point. I believe that it is important for us as parents to train our children as the discipleship process, how to endure persecution. Jesus says this, 
He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first, or know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus goes on to say, students are not greater than their teacher, and their sl- or their slaves are not greater than their master. Students are to be like their teacher, and slaves are to be like their master. And since I am the master, not, not me, Jesus, okay? Uh, I am the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons. The members of the household will be called even worse names. Think about that. Jesus is saying, listen, people have come at me, and they've called me Satan. And because you follow me, they're going to come at you and call you even worse stuff. It's hard to be, imagine what would be worse than calling me Satan, eh? Like, but if you live for Jesus and you are faithful to Jesus, at some point and at some level, maybe a big level or a small level, you will be antagonized for sharing Jesus. And sometimes it's going to be by people that you know, and sometimes it's going to be to be complete strangers. And to me, the complete stranger thing hurts a little bit more because I did nothing wrong to you, right? Why are you against me? Like, I don't get it, right? And I want to, as we close today, I want to observe four things that David prays that you can pray when you feel people are attacking you specifically for no reason. Number one, David asked for God's help. Verses one to three, it says this, "'Oh God, save me by your name "'and vindicate me by your might. "'Hear my prayer. "'Give ears to the words of my mouth. "'God, I need you to hear this.'" Verse one and two appear differently in the Hebrew Bible than they do our English Bible. Literally, they read, "'Oh God, save me. "'Oh God, hear my prayer.'" And normally the verb appears first in the Hebrew, but in this case, each cry for help begins with, Oh God. By rearranging the normal word order, David emphasizes that he has uttered his utter dependence on God, and the emphasis is further strengthened by his, the repetition, right? Oh God, oh God. And we discover immediately, as an example in David, that we find ourselves that <clears throat> we discover immediately an example in David for, we, for when we find ourselves under attack emotionally, by emotion, uh, emotionally or physically, is that you pray first. I know that that's not rocket science. You, you, should, you should know that. But often I found in my life, whatever there's a conflict or problem, I think of all the normal solutions first, and then if it doesn't work, then I pray. Right? But I'm going to ask you that when, when people are attacking you and you're not sure why, the first knee-jerk reaction you should have is not to fight back, but to go on your knees and pray. Normally we pray last. Instinct almost compels us first to fight back. We retaliate or develop a resentment for the ones who make our life miserable. Observe that David requests deliverance and vindication on the basis of two things, God's name and God's power. Throughout the Old Testament, God is called at least 12 different names, each one highlighting a particular aspect of his character. As David has called to mind God's attributes, he's settled on the Lord's power, his omnipotence. When attacked by people, 
our imagination tends to stretch the truth. We begin to think of our enemies as they have unlimited power. David found comfort in the reminder that God is more powerful than anyone or anything in the universe. David went on to describe the problem in great detail. And then secondly, I want you to understand this, is that understand that when a stranger attacks you, it isn't without cause. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 23. This is like when the Ziphites, they go to David and Saul responds. They say this, Saul says this, may you be blessed by the Lord for you have had compassion on me. What you understand and what you start to realize is that the Ziphites really did it not because David hurt them, not because they were angry at David, simply because there was a benefit for them and that benefit was Saul's favor. <clears throat> Here's what I'd like you to do when you go home this morning or the next time you have devos or the next time you feel like someone is hurting you and you're not really sure why. I want you to make a list and beside each name, use one word to describe your feelings. For example, Elizabeth. Uh, this, is, this isn't real, this is just an example. She makes me feel infuriated. Keep the list private. Look back at it and list of your names that you've created. And beside each one, write down what motive each one has for their actions. Don't let paranoia gain control over your answers. Try to think objectively. What does each person stand to gain by their behavior? Then you evaluate each motive considering God's will. And ask the question, do you think that God supports their goals. This will actually help you fulfill a commandment in Scripture regarding your enemies. What does Scripture say about how you are to treat your enemies? You are supposed to love them. This will actually help you understand. Number three, David prayed to leave room for God's vengeance. Verse four and five, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the uplifter of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, he will put them to an end. As I read verse 5 in Psalms 54, it seems actually pretty severe. Surely it doesn't mean what it says, I thought. Surely God wouldn't destroy the enemy, I said to myself. How wrong I was when I looked up the term destroy in the Hebrew text. Do you know what it means? Are you ready for a shock? It is taken from the, the Hebrew verb tismath. Oh, I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Which means to exterminate. In fact, the verb appears in Hebrew, a Hebrew construct, uh, construction that denotes cause, literally to cause or to annihilate. In other words, David is declaring by faith that God will, will cause those who have become his enemies to be totally and completely and thoroughly removed. That's a hard thing to pray. But I want you to remind you, I want to remind you something as you're watching, listening to this. It's not David that's doing the removing, it's God. It is so easy for us to play God when we're under pressure, isn't it? We have thought about the temptation to take our own vengeance before, but Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 19, warns us against doing that. It says, Repay no one for evil, but give thought. <clears throat> but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If it's all possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so here is David, and David is saying, God, I need your help, and I need you to come through, I need you to save me. And in verse 4 and 5, he's saying, God, I need you to vindicate me, I need a le- I'm going to leave room for your vengeance and your revenge. Okay? And that's and the reason that I think that's so important for you and I to understand is this, is that you and I are not typically qualified to, deser- to, deser- to determine who deserves what. The reason God says, and that David goes, I'm going to leave the vengeance to you. I'm going to let you decide how you're going to handle this and all this kind of thing is that you and I, on a hard level, are not qualified or not smart enough or not healthy enough or not, like, not, not, not wounded enough to think about how to act, uh, how to avenge ourselves properly, okay? We don't know what is in the other person's hearts. We can't tell. Only God knows what's in a person's heart. We don't know how much to factor in their woundedness or external circumstances that they're going through. We don't even really know if what we see is accurate or not. They may very well be additional information that would make a big difference in our attitude towards them. Perhaps, maybe that we are 100% accurate, the problem is, is that when we try to avenge ourselves, we never know. We must leave the avengeance to God. Part of leaving room for God's vengeance includes recognizing and accepting the fact that God himself is 120% capable of punishing those who do wrong, and you don't need to. He will take care of it. He will fight for justice. You need to be still. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you You only need to be still. The second reason we are to avoid seeking revenge is that I believe we short-circuit God's own plans to bring his own vengeance upon him. When we take it upon ourselves to avenge, we step into the place of God and possibly block what God had in mind to bring a person to that justice. He wants us to leave room for us, for him to deal with that person in his way, and in his time. And I want you to catch this. This is so important. It is extremely hard for someone like David, who protects sheep by fighting bears, who protects Israel by fighting Goliath, to stand and let someone else, particularly God, fight his battles for him. Okay? Here's how I think that looks in your life. I want you to go back over your list of difficult people. And you have acknowledged their emotional impact and how they've evaluated their their possible motives. And I want you to grant them pardon from retaliation. This is otherwise known as what? Forgiveness. Before God, surrender your right to seek justice or restitution. This means that we forgive, which the Lord has commanded us to do. Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, 18 to 21 and 22. 
Lastly, as we close today, I want you to understand one more thing, is that David prayed expectantly. Verses 6 to 7. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for you are good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The final verse of Psalm 54 is the sudden reversal. The first verse describes a dire situation, prompting David to plead for God's help. But by verse 7, his despondency has turned to triumph. His declaration, he has delivered me from all evil, is past tense. Hebrew literature often uses the perfect tense to declare a future event as good as done. But David doesn't know how or when God will act on his behalf. Nevertheless, he writes the concept. My point is this, is that David is praying in that verse that God has already answered the prayer. That he kind of, it's kind of a weird thing to, to think about, but he, he's saying, hey, I know that God will deliver me. I know that God will protect me. But in the middle of writing this, God has not come through yet. Okay? He's still being chased around the mountain. Okay? Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked for help. <clears throat> According to Psalm, or, uh, 1, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, that's exactly what happened. David, God intervened to protect David from his enemies. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men went on the other side, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and his men were surrounding David, and they came to seize him, but a messenger came to Saul and said, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. Right. So God's way of protecting in this situation was actually to call Saul back home. David's choice of words reflects a man without bitterness. He could, we, he could easily look, look his enemy squarely in the eye without malice or resentment. He had released them to God and he had dealt them with him and he had, he had let God dealt with him in his own sovereign and perfect way. Let's declare war on those long-stabbing habits we have to cultivate against others, those negative feelings those unforget that that unforgiveness, that resentment, that competitiveness, the grudges that we face, the jealousy that we have, the revenge, the hatred, the retaliation, the gossip, the criticism, the suspicion. Let's leave that rugged and well-worn road and pray a prayer of Psalms 54 when we're when we are trouble. So to recap. What did David do when people attacked him without cause? He asked God for help. I would argue that he understood that there was some sort of benefit that they were getting out of it. David prayed to leave room for God's vengeance, and he trusted that God would answer his prayer. The next time that you find yourself in a situation where people are mistreating you, whether you know them or not, and you're not sure why, you can pray Psalms 54, just as David did. And I am fairly positive that God will deliver you. Psalms 54, like I said, is God's way of saying to you and I that he cares when you're afflicted. He cares when you're hurt. Psalms 54 is God's way of letting you know that God cares for you so much and that he is more than happy and willing to be your defender. So the next time you're hurt, pray Ask God to deliver you. 
Trust God that will seek his own with your own vengeance and your own justice and live and act in a way as if God has already answered the prayer. Is that good? Amen. Everyone's hot. Let's, uh, let's close with one more song.